This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. All right, gentlemen, open your scriptures with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, our consideration this morning will take place on the Sermon on the Mount. And what I'd like to do is to talk about our Father, who is in heaven, who hears us pray. And to get there, I would actually like to situate us where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, the Sermon on the Mount has historically been known as the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And I've I've jokingly said in the past, I think many people think this is the greatest sermon because if you read through Matthew 5 to 7, it takes you about 15 minutes. And people say, man, that that is the greatest sermon. I think, well, my sermon won't be that good today. Um, But uh, obviously this is a rich, rich passage of Scripture. And Jesus indicates many, many wonderful things to us here. And you'll notice, I want to situate us to where we are in this sermon, and particularly who the sermon is written to. It may be confusing at the beginning, because he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Well, who's the them? It could be the crowds that he saw. It could be the disciples. Obviously, the disciples are a little bit closer, and so the referent probably refers back to them. But we know it, in fact, does refer back to them. Because just in a few few verses, he's going to say, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He doesn't say that to a general audience of people, the crowd, as the book of Matthew calls them. He says that to his disciples. So he's speaking to his disciples here. And if I could put a theme to the Sermon on the Mount, it would be, You are different because you have greater righteousness. You're different because you have greater righteousness. How how are we going to demonstrate that? Well, Jesus begins his sermon in a very odd way. The Beatitudes are are a strange thing. I mean, if I began my sermon with a series of Beatitudes, it would would be a little bit of a different thing. And Jesus, that's the way he starts. And nevertheless, I think there's a lot of meaning in these Beatitudes. In fact, he begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, I think purposefully. Because he notes there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's indicating that these are the ones who will inherit the kingdom. These are the ones who will obtain that eternal life. They are those who are, as he says, poor in spirit. If we trace this through the Old Testament prophets and some of those ideas, we get this sense that these are the people who recognize their spiritual need. They are the poor in spirit. Notice then he says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. And while some have suggested that the Beatitudes are unconnected, the random statements where Jesus just says, hey, here's some blessings and here's some, you know, here's, here's some things that, uh, that may be attributable, attributable to you and then here's some blessings that accompany that. I think that Jesus is actually intentional here. And if so, one has to ask the question, Why are they mourning? Blessed are those who mourn. And and I would suggest it's because they are those who recognize their poorness in spirit. He goes on to indicate blessed are the meek. And I would say that that flows out of a recognition of who we are and our mourning. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they know their need. Leads to being merciful. Leads to being pure in heart. Leads to being peacemakers. And ultimately, and I think this is one of the main points of the Beatitudes, it ultimately will lead to this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice he begins and ends the same way. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I think here's the point. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual need, mourn over it, and here's the ultimate, ultimate thing that will result for those. They'll be rejected by the world. In fact, I think he highlights that in verse 11. Because he's noted, blessed are those, 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 and then he gets to verse 11. He says, blessed are you. So he's personalizing this for his disciples. He's saying, this is going to happen to you. And of course, the apostles are going to come later and say, yeah, in fact, that will happen to you because that's exactly what happened to Christ. But here he says, blessed are you when others revile you, they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A couple of things to note here. He indicates that your reward is great in heaven. Though you're rejected on this earth, your reward will be great in the heavenly places, and you're among good people. So you're rejected by the world. Well, so will the prophet. And we can say today, you're rejected by the world, but so is Jesus. We're in good company. Ours is the kingdom of heaven as we live out what Scripture calls us to. So I think at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus presents uh, this, this encapsulation of the Christian life. Then he jumps into, you are the salt, you are the light. He begins in verse 17 to talk about how Christ came, how he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law, but to accomplish it. And there's, there's a lot that we could talk about there. But what I want to focus your attention on is verse 20. He's talked about the role of the law, but he says this. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, that means to go far beyond. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what he's indicated here is that those who are poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. And now he says, now, unless your righteousness far exceeds, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And I would, I would put it this way. I think this is, this is what we would all argue, that conversion results in change. That the spirit who has saved you is also the spirit who sanctifies. And Paul says in other contexts that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Very similar language to what Jesus is saying here. So he's saying there's a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Which when I said that, none of your jaws dropped open. But if you would have been in Jesus' original audience, they probably would have. Because here here are... I mean, here's the example of the people who have the, you know, all the laws in Moses, and then let's add some more to make sure we didn't get those, right? So if, if this is where Scripture says don't go, well, we're going to put the fence over here. We're going to say don't do this, 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 and this. And people say, well, how am I going to be more righteous than them? And that's where Jesus comes to a consideration of the law. And the righteousness isn't so much that you have more laws than others. And in fact, 
despite what we often think, I don't think that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, actually made the law harder. I think they made it easier. Which, which sounds striking, but, but stay with me for a moment, because what does Jesus say here? He says, <coughs> those who are truly my disciples, those who inherit the kingdom of heaven, have a greater righteousness, and, and they don't just not kill people. They also care about their words. They also care about the anger of their hearts. They're the type of people who don't just not commit adultery, but they're the type of people who care about their thought life. They care about where their heart goes. And he begins then to walk through the various laws, and he's saying that there's deeper meaning with these laws in the sense that um, God cares, yes, about what we do, but about why we do them. And his disciples are the type who have been transformed inside, not just outside. And that leads to a different type of life, and, and he develops much of that. And then he gets down into chapter 6, where our passages, that where the passages we're going to be considering occur. And he says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That is a key phrase for this whole section. Beware of practicing your righteousness or doing righteous deeds in front of other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Notice again that theme of reward in heaven. But I want to focus our attention on this concept of Father here. Now, Jesus is going to give three examples of how it is that we should not practice our righteousness before others. He begins with the example of giving to the needy, the alms. And he says, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do. And then notice how he ends it in verse 4. So that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. He gives another example prayer. And we're going to walk through this more carefully in just a moment, but he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Why? Because he says at the end of verse 6, when you pray, go to your room, shut the door for your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles because he says this in verse 8, don't be like them for your father knows what you need. Notice he then says in verse 9, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. Notice he then gives a third example. So he's talked about giving alms or giving to the poor. He's talked about prayer. And then he talks about fasting. He says, when you, don't, when you fast, don't, don't look like the hypocrites. Don't paint your face and make everyone know, hey, I'm fasting. Instead, wash your face. Do all those sorts of things. Verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your, you might know the word, <laughs> father. I would say a, a theme throughout chapter 6 here in these first three sections is that you're like your father, 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 father. In fact, notice the end of chapter 5 says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This theme of father then is central to the conception of how we practice our righteousness. And I'd like to apply that to our prayer life. 
Now, this word father is most likely, I follow Craig Blomberg here, is, is most likely the Aramaic word Abba. And it probably does bring over some elements of, of that word. Now, we've probably all heard the idea that Abba means daddy. And I don't think that that necessarily is the best translation of the term. Having said, though, if we go to the other extreme, to the degree that we distance the relationship, then I think we've missed it, too. I think this term, father, is an intentional reference to a very close, loving relationship. Now, I I recognize that some of us in this room have fantastic relationships with with earthly fathers. And and there's that that connection automatically when I say the love for father that, that you've got. Others of us don't, and I recognize that. But he is talking about that kind of a close, familial, loving relationship. He is our Father. How then does that impact the way we pray? Notice what he says in verse 5. He's he's saying you're not to be like other people because, again, other people are not inheriting the kingdom of heaven. It's those who've been poor in spirit, those who've been converted. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, those who, who act one way when in fact they are another. Here's the reason you ought not to be like them. Verse 5, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. So here's the question. Is the problem for these men, these religious hypocrites, that they prayed in the synagogues and the street corners? And the obvious answer is no, especially the synagogue. I mean, you would expect that there would be prayer in the synagogue, right? And this is where prayer would would take place. And while it would be awkward in our generation today, if you were to go out and stand on the corner over here and and start praying out loud, I, I don't think necessarily it would have been in this particular context. That would be a place where people might gather. And so saying a prayer in that context would be perhaps a good thing. So the location of the prayer is not the central component of this, despite the fact that Jesus is going to say, enter into your closet in just a moment. The problem here is clear from the passage. They love to do this in the synagogues and the street corners. That purpose clause, that they may be seen by others. Their purpose in prayer is not to pray to God. It's to pray to others. And, and notice what, what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, they've received a reward. So what's the reward? Others heard them. So they went and they prayed so that others would hear them. And others might think well of them. And Jesus says they have it. They've got it. But you ought to be, ought not to be like. You ought to care about something more significant. And so he says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now clearly in verse 6 here, he says, go into your closet um, or into your room. 
Uh, Clause is the, the King James Version there. It's, it's just an idea of, of a separate room where one would go unimpeded by others to pray to the Father. Now, clearly, I indicated earlier that I don't think the location of the prayer was the problem. And I'm convinced that Jesus is not saying public prayer is a problem here. Why do I say that? Well, because in just a few moments, he's going to say, our Father who is in heaven. And unless you have split personality or something, you don't tend to pray that by yourself. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, there is, um, there's proper public prayer. But I do think this points out something for us. And that is that if your prayer life is such that you pray more in front of other people than you do in private, then you ought to be very concerned that you're really not talking to your father. That in fact, the motivation of your prayer is because of others. And Jesus here says that that the true prayer is that which actually happens to the Father. I think that's his point. True prayer is that which occurs between a man and God. Not just God, his personal Father. So he says, when you go, go into your closet and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What kind of reward will he give to you? Now, some have suggested in the past that this reward is the answer to the prayer, and, and that may be part of it. But I think clearly within the broader context, he's been talking about heavenly rewards. In fact, notice over in verse 19, he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. That's where the rewards are. He's, he's talked about it earlier in, in chapter 5. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you, because you'll have rewards in heaven. He's saying here that those who truly pray to me, those who have truly been changed, those who are different will pray to me and they will receive rewards for that. They'll receive rewards for the relationship that they have with me. Where does the rubber meet the road for you and I in terms of this? And I I think it does meet, the rubber meets the road in public prayer. The majority of us have opportunity periodically to pray in front of other people. You know, I mean, even if it's just in a local church setting, you, you know, everyone divide up into groups and let's pray. And here's my question. Have you ever noticed in your heart, have you ever prayed and then afterwards thought, you know, I don't know that I even prayed to God. Have you ever considered that in your heart? <laughs> you've, thought, you've thought so much about what other people were going to think about your prayer. You thought so much, I mean, you know, and, and this happens. I try and encourage people, you know, if you're in a, in a prayer circle, right, you know you're coming next. What are you thinking about? What am I going to start with? How am I going to start this thing off? And I think that's the absolute wrong thing to think. We're talking to God. And I think this, is a, this, is, this, this gets down to what we think prayer is. Prayer has nothing to do with people who are listening to me pray. It doesn't. It has to do with my conversation with God. And this, this wreaks havoc, I think, within even our churches. Um, I remember when uh, we had a relatively recent convert in our church um, in Philadelphia. 
and we were praying, and, and she said she didn't want to pray, and that was fine. But later on, I, I asked her, I said, now, uh, why, why didn't you want to pray with, with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And she said, boy, because, man, everybody just knows how to pray, and I don't know how to pray. And, and, and as we discussed that, and as I thought about it later, I think the central idea here was that she heard these lines you know, that, that we have, and, and we, we have these pre-planned statements and these sorts of things. And she didn't know that lingo. She didn't know the lingo of how you were supposed to talk to God. But you see, we're, we're talking the wrong way, aren't we? Because prayer is a conversation. In fact, it's a conversation to a person, to God, to our Father. And when we begin to lose sight of our Father, we've lost sight of the whole purpose. I mean, just think of how ridiculous it would be if my earthly father were standing here beside me. And I said, now let me talk to my father. And I continued to talk to you. And I never even acknowledged his existence over here. My father would be like, were you talking to me? What's going on? And yet I'm afraid that sometimes in our prayers, that is precisely what has happened. Not one thought has headed past the clouds. We've talked to one another. And I trust that you're saying, well, you know, that's not me. But if it is, then we ought to begin thinking about our own hearts here. And I think this may be more of a widespread problem than just the hypocrites. We care very much about these things. Now, let me also say that I don't think it's problematic if we plan our prayers. Okay, so someone might say, well, well, then clearly then we wouldn't want written prayers because those are pre-planned and that sort of thing. I don't think that this denies that because at the end of the day, even if I've written out a prayer and I pray it precisely, the key is who is I praying to? Who is I directing those words to? As I, as I communicated, was I communicating to my Heavenly Father or was I communicating to others? And this is the primary problem with the the religious leaders here, these scribes and these Pharisees. They stood up and they wanted others to look at them. Instead of directing the focus to God, they, they were not praying to their father. See, what Jesus says here is that those who are truly his disciples talk to him. Notice the second thing here, though. The... Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the, the, I'm sorry, verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. It's somewhat difficult to understand exactly what the problem is here with the Gentiles. It's possible a couple of things. One is that they're babbling. That, that seems to be the Greek word here. They're just babbling various things. And it could be that they're just babbling and they're hoping that their babbling to God would result in the right words and eventually that God would answer them. I think probably more likely, however, that the problem here is a mechanistic view of God. That what the Gentiles want to do is they need to pray a certain thing a certain number of times until God whatever their concept of God would be, would finally relent and give them what they desire. I was just reading a book uh, about uh, spiritual revival in China, but it was talking 
not only about Christianity, but about some other religions as well, some of the more classical religions there. And he was talking about a man who was, um, who was praying this prayer. And so the man asked him, so why do, you, why do you pray that prayer? And he said, well, if you pray it 10,000 times, then you are guaranteed the blessing. And he said, I pray it 10 times a night. And eventually, by the time I'm whatever age, I'm going to get there, and that blessing will be mine. Is that the type of prayer that God calls us to? Let me ask if, if in fact, that was the type of prayer that God calls us to. Who would God be? Well, I would say he would not be a father, not be a person, uh, a person in a personal relationship with us. Notice he, he contrasts that. He says, don't be like that. It's not about the number of words you say. It's not even perhaps about the way that you say it. He says, don't be like them. Verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now we could get into a whole theological drama here. <laughs> about how do you, you know, so if, if God knows what I need, so then why do we pray at all? And I think the short answer would be that God has not only ordained all things to come to pass, but he's also ordained your prayers to accomplish various things that he accomplishes with his will. And then, of course, that leads to the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility and all of that. All I will say is, on the human responsibility side, God calls us to pray. And he certainly does that. But he says, don't be like them. For, for apparently they're coming, and they think they need to make known to God something. Uh, they, they apparently seem to think that God is ignorant of something or that God doesn't know their needs or that God doesn't want, know what they want. He says, in fact, God does know that because he is your father. Um, my daughters are six, four, and two right now. When my daughters come to me asking for something, I generally already know what they want candy <laughs> some sort of food generally okay and uh and so they'll they'll come and, and there's a sense in which i already know what they want but you know they're not going to get it unless they ask for it too right and so there, there's that sense but you know they come to me as a father who they know i care for them now i don't think jesus here is condemning a type of prayer that that continues to come to god asking for the same thing you know, some might say, well, what Jesus is condemning here is praying the same thing. Well, the scriptures tell us that Jesus went and prayed the same thing three times. So that's, that's not the issue. I think it's the hard attitude that lies behind it. Why is it that we continue to come to the Lord numerous times for the same request? Is it because we have a mechanistic, machine-like view, like if we put enough coins into the machine, that finally God will just give us what we want? Or are we going to a heavenly father who truly cares for us, that truly knows our needs, and yet we come to him and we say, Father, here is what I desire. Here's what I desire. And ultimately your will be done, but here is what I desire. And we come to him as a father. I think combining these two things, then we see this, that ultimately what Jesus' disciples, those who are truly converted do, is they pray to a person. 
And in fact, they pray to a heavenly father. Because note how he says, he observes them or tells them to pray, teaches them to pray. He says, pray then like this, our father. You see, when we begin our prayer, we orientate ourselves to the relationship that exists between us. I think this is why when I when I pray, I, I begin that way. Father, because because I, I'm hoping in my own heart that this is that this is connecting. Yes, I am talking to my father, the one who cares for me, the one who knows my needs, and a person. A divine person, certainly. God beyond who I am, but nevertheless, one who has personality, our Father. And then notice he says, in heaven. And I think this, this provides a balance and, and a juxtaposition that is just, just astonishing. Our Father, deep, close, personal relationship, who's in heaven. <laughs> who resides in the heavenly places, but does not just reside there, but rules over it. Because he's going to say, let your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. I mean, he has all power. He holds all things together. I mean, the one to whom we are in personal relationship, the one you pray to, is not only the Father, but he is the ruler of all heavens and even the earth. So our Father, orientating us to who He is in heaven, again, orientating us to who our Father is. He is the one with all authority and power. Let your name be holy. It's a prayer. And it's the first prayer. Glorify yourself. Magnify yourself. May you be praised. Make your name first and great. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. I think these are forward-looking anticipations as these things come to pass. Let your kingdom come. May it come as we look towards the eschatological hope. Let your will be done. May, May the things that you desire to be accomplished in this world be accomplished on earth, even as it is in heaven. And so you note then, the very first half of the prayer first orientates us to who we are praying to and then situates it so that we recognize that we desire what he wants more than what we want. Because you'll notice he has not yet prayed for any of his own requests or directed individuals to pray for their own requests. Having orientated our minds to the fact that, in fact, what is best is God's will and God's glory, we then have opportunity that, to ask that the Lord would give us our daily bread. That word daily there is a challenging Greek word, hapoxagomena. We're not exactly sure what it means, but most probably it is daily bread, the, the bread that we need every day. So give us our needs, provide for us what we need. And then forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors, I think this is really a prayer uh, towards sanctification. It's a recognition of our failures. And it is a, a request that we continue to be faithful to what God has called us to be. 
And then it requests that the Lord would protect us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. And clearly, Scripture indicates to us that, that God does not tempt us. Nevertheless, I think the overall point here is, do what you've promised. Give us the strength to endure in the midst of temptation. Provide for us that way of escape. Deliver us from evil, just as you have promised. And so, the Lord's Prayer, as it's been called, I would put it this way, because John 17 seems to be more the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 5 indicates to us the disciples' prayer. How does a true disciple of Christ pray? I don't think that we have to pray these words. I don't think that was his point. And many have pointed out the irony of the, the, the verse, verses 7 and 8 about not using um, just a, a phrase as though that phrase is going to be heard. And then all of a sudden, many people in church history using this prayer as though it's this thing that God will automatically answer if I merely say it. Clearly, that's not the case. But it is a model prayer. It is the model on which I think we ought to pray. It is a recognition of how we ought to begin our prayers, orientating our minds to who God is. It's a recognition that we ought, first of all, to pray for God's will to be done. And after that, to pray for the needs that we have, the spiritual needs and the, the continued sanctification that God has promised to us in his word, those are our ultimate needs. And so, stepping back into the, into the, broader, book of, uh, into the broader Sermon on the Mount, what is Jesus accomplishing here? He has indicated that his disciples will have a greater righteousness and that this greater righteousness will be demonstrated in various ways. One of the ways in which that greater righteousness will be demonstrated in our lives is that we genuinely will pray to a heavenly Father who we know hears us. And so I wonder, as we consider our own prayer life, are there some things that Jesus criticizes here that resonate within our own hearts that we say, you know, I've noticed that in my own prayer life. And if that's the case, then let's begin working on it. And if you say, you know, I have not spent enough prayer, enough time in prayer, and I wonder sometimes, how, how, do, how do you really pray? Well, Jesus really answered that question. And he's given to us a good pattern that that you can take and develop uh, your prayers from. So let's pray together. Father, you are truly in heaven, and you truly care for us. You have all power. And we're thankful today for that, for you've given to us much more than we deserve. You've given to us your son. And we're thankful for that. And because of the work of your Son and the work of your Spirit in our hearts, you've made us new people. And we want to demonstrate that newness in our lives and even through our prayers. And so we pray that you would continue to change us, that you'd make us more into the image of your Son. We thank you that we can look forward to your heavenly kingdom coming down into this earth, and and we, we anticipate. And yet even today, as we look forward to that day, may your will be done.
Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.